Welcome to Saga Craft. Myths, fairy tales, legends, stories comfort us, inspire us, and heal us. Please join us as we share stories, both old and new. More than anything, we are open to the story and its unfolding. At times, it may be one story told by one person. At times, it's the same story told through three different voices. In the end, we go where the story takes us, and we invite you to follow. I'm C, a writer, artist, and storyteller. I'm Betsy, a medium and teacher of mystery traditions. I'm Gabriella, an artist and practitioner of folk magic. We, we are, are magical, magical fairy godmothers, godmothers in, in training. training. Our stories this week are continuation of our previous gin stories, and we hope you enjoy them. We also want to honor Saga and acknowledge that Saga's story and all of us are experiencing our own sagas at this time. And we hope that your saga is made more rewarding, more fun, more enjoyable with our stories. And I'd like to start by just recapping with the last few paragraphs from my previous gin story that has to do with Tess and the gift that she was given by her grandmother, Hulda. When the package was unwrapped, a bottle was revealed. The glass was amethyst-colored with gold trim and swirling decorations. It had a slight aura of smokiness around it. Tessa's eyes were big as she gazed at the bottle. Sybil knew that look all too well. Tess was already enraptured by the bottle and whatever was in it. Before she could say, let's call Hulda, Tess had impulsively drawn out the stopper from the bottle, releasing not just a cloud of amber and oud perfume, but a young male gin with black curling hair and slanting amethyst eyes. Tess said, oh, and disappeared before her eyes with him in a swirl of violet smoke. Hildur, the goblin cat, howled desolately from behind the closed still room door. Tessa's eyes opened slowly, and as she gazed above, she saw the bluest sky that she could have ever imagined. She blinked slowly, reluctant to move very quickly. She tried to make sense of what she was seeing. The remembrance of the bottle, the kitchen, the suspense as she was about to open the bottle came back to her, and she groaned as she realized she was no longer in her kitchen. She was reluctant not just to move, but to see more about her actual whereabouts. She gave herself a stern little talking to when she realized she was afraid and was hoping it was just a dream. No, not a dream. She had apported, or rather been apported, to some unknown location. She applied herself to becoming a little more brave, not wanting to be like a shrinking violet, a helpless damsel. She employed her senses. It was warm here, and she sensed that she was alone. She was surprised when she turned her head to see that though the sky seemed to be above her, it was actually the ceiling of the room she was in. A magical ceiling? 
The relatively comfortable position her body was lying in had to do with thick Persian-style carpets in a room with little furniture besides a low table. A glass on the table was filled with what looked like water, but though dreadfully thirsty, she was not going to gulp down some undetermined liquid. She tried reaching out to her mother with her mind. Nothing. She tried reaching out to Hulda. She felt Hulda start, and then the tiny connection was broken. Then she heard voices. At first, too faint to hear clearly, she heard a male and a female voice in a bit of a heated conversation. The voices continued to come closer. Can't believe you stole a witch girl and brought her here. What on earth possessed you? Did you even think, my son, of the consequences? They steal us regularly, he said hotly. How do you think I ended up in that thrice damned situation in a country colder than the coldest hell? I can only imagine that you exposed yourself to the risk, for why else would you not be wearing your amulet? The voices were clear now and very close. Tess inched her way into a sitting position, needing to clutch her head as the room spun around her. There was a silence for a moment, and then the male voice answered with a lot less heat. Well, true enough, I did let myself get captured deliberately. The female voice hissed in distress and fury. I know, I know, mother, but see it my way, the male voice had become coaxing. I wanted to turn the tables on humans and capture one of them as my spiritus, and who better than a witch? She can do my bidding. There are so many things wrong with your reasoning, my son, not least thinking a young witch can do much at all. Tess felt her ears burning and squelched a rising desire to defend her magical capabilities. She bit her lips to keep quiet. But most importantly, two wrongs do not make a right. You have only sunk yourself to their level, and how did you think you could keep this to yourself? And what icy hell are you talking about? You could have been imprisoned for a phoenix age and we wouldn't have seen you for decades. Well, I was, actually, only because I time-shifted back to the 70s and let myself drift around the souk in Marrakesh and be seen. Some Crowley type was on me in a flash, and he actually knew more than I could have ever thought. So bound was I by him that each time he called me up, I was bound tighter. But I'm afraid I engineered his early demise. And then I sat on a dusty altar for a while in my bottle before I was put into the wall and plastered over. So boring. It wasn't until renovations were done that I was found. One favor the Crowley magician did was that no one else could summon me, so there I sat, apparent to those with eyes to see that I was in the bottle. But after some horrifying attempts to summon me from which I will have nightmares for years to come, I was taken to auction in Asbjergi in Iceland, a magical market. Oh yes, I've heard about that market. That's where we were able to retrieve your great-aunt Yasima after she disappeared for all those years. A witch there did us a favor and released her without thought of reward. You have to reward her though, don't you, obligation-wise? Yes, but it stings a lot less when they don't expect it. I wondered what happened to Yasima. She won't talk about it. 
If only she had, she might have stopped you. Well, what are we going to do about this girl? I think you should let me have her for a while. She can then return and spread the story amongst the witches of what it's like to be bound. Since you are the one who engineered your own binding, I think that would be out of balance. And whatever you may think, witches have done me more good than ill. And don't you find it odd that the girl can have opened the bottle and released you? She either has more power than I would have thought, or she belongs to Hulda's family. Um, I think they were talking about somebody named Hulda right before I was released. The female voice hissed in exasperation. Then one of Hulda's family released you. I gave her access to us for this express purpose of releasing bound gin if she comes across us. She's liberated more gin than you could have thought. We are working together, my son. Oh, mother, I had no idea. If only you had told me. No, my son, I did tell you on your coming-of-age birthday when you heard your family lineage and honor obligations recited to you. The Hulda's daughters are a family we are obligated to. There was a long silence. I'm truly, deeply sorry, mother. If only you truly were, my son. But you will be. Come, let's speak with this witch girl. They came into the room where Tess was sitting. She jumped to her feet, wobbling and causing the female to clasp her about the shoulders, helping to hold her up. She ushered her into the next room and seated her on a divan heaped with silken pillows. Tess looked up into the flame-pupiled eyes of two jinn, one young and quite gorgeously male, though sulky-looking, and one clearly his equally beautiful mother. The mother said, you are welcome to our home. Tess, with lessons about respectful gin lore crowding uselessly in her mind, sorted through the possibilities and came up with nothing. None of it seemed to suit the circumstances of being abducted and possibly enslaved by the most handsome boy she had ever seen, who also seemed rather horrid. After a long silence, the boy cried out, She's witless. The mother cut him off with a sharp hand gesture. She tried again. My dear, are you a relation of Hulda? Tess nodded and managed to say that Hulda was her grandmother. We are friends, Hulda and I, and now you are a treasured guest. Tess's mind was still on overdrive and she found herself hoping that treasured guest of a djinn was different than treasured guest of a dragon, where that meant you became part of their horde. The lady djinn seemed to read her, for she said reassuringly, we'll sort this out and get you home. Tess blurted out, Hulda gave me the bottle your son was in as a present. The eyebrows of the Lady Jin flew upwards, and she seemed to rise up off the ground, elongating in a sinuous movement. The tween Jin also went through the odd elongation, feet disappearing, and looked very angry. Karim, go find your father. Mother, I can't believe you gave this witch my name, he cried reproachfully. She has power over me now. Hopefully more than I do, said his mother tartly. Go get your father and enjoy the freedom of flight while you still have it. Father's going to be so upset, said the djinn. Go, said his mother. 
She turned to the girl. Let us have some refreshment and get to know each other. I'm delighted to meet Hulda's granddaughter. I want to hear everything you can remember about this gift from Hulda. Something tells me that Hulda is... She reached for the right words. Up to something, said Tess. Yes, this is likely some kind of test, magical test or lore test or interspecies relations. Ah, yes, I was thinking along the same lines. Karim was enjoying flight after decades in a bottle. He had shifted into a wing shape that sped through the sky. He loved his father and looked forward to seeing him. It would be only a short interval of separation for the older Jin, but it had been a long time for him since he'd seen his father. He flew to the mountains where his father held court. He pondered how to approach him. Wheedling wouldn't work. It enraged his father, who thought he should stand up for himself in all integrity. He decided that to be sorry would be the most effective way to keep his father's wrath from descending on him. He was seen from a distance by a small band of griffins and escorted to a stronghold where his father administered his kingdom. His father was of the mountains, his mother the desert, and each of them had their own kingdoms to rule. He entered a stone building, approached the dais in the center of the circular room where his father was currently manifested in his most archaic shape. From this aspect, he could perceive his entire kingdom communicating with other officials mind to mind. His father prized efficiency. He looked like fluid fire in a roughly giant shape. Karim, the deep bass voice rumbled in his head. What brings you here? His father's back was to him, but he spun around, creating a bewildering image of flame and liquefied stone. It re-solidified into the vast shape of the elder royal jinn. You've been time-shifting and in the mortal world. He sniffed him. And the elven world. Yes, said Karim simply. Mother asks you to come. It has to do with honor. Flame rippled down his father from the top of his head to his feet, pooling around him. Trouble, son? Your trouble? Karim bowed his head and said sadly, yes. His father took a mighty in-breath and Karim found himself hurtling through space, but not time. They emerged from the spatial blur onto the desert sands before his mother's palace. His father downshifted to a more humanoid appearance, smoothing his waving hair back shifted from utilitarian clothes into silken robes, and bellowed, I've come. In here, my darling, said his wife's languid voice. Meet Tess, a granddaughter of Hulda Freya's daughter. She was given the bottle that our son was imprisoned in, and now she has his name. Our son? You mean your son, he said under his breath, but still very loud. Lady Tess, I'm delighted to meet you. Karim, take Tess to our fountain garden and endeavor to be a kind host to her. Your father and I must talk. Karim gave her a questioning look, then bowed and led Tess from the room. Tess followed with interest as he took her through the official palace corridors to a private courtyard lush with flowers, trees, and chattering birds. Here they sat awkwardly in silence, taking the measure of each other. 
she slender as gazelle with blue-gray eyes, and he sculpted as though of bronze with slanting flame eyes. They sat in silence. His parents took hold of each other's hands and shifted from the gin world to Hulda's house in a second. Hulda was prepared for them with a roaring fire going, dessert wine and sherbet waiting for her guests. She greeted them gladly and asked them if they would collect Sybil, who was frantic with worry, and bring her back here. They gracefully bowed and complied. Hulda had prepared Sybil for the possibility of their arrival, and Sybil was accordingly out of her usual stillroom apron and in a vivid dress in honor of consorting with royalty. They swept her, after a formal greeting, more or less instantly to Hulda's home. After sitting in Hulda's comfortable presence, Karim's mother, who went by the name of Ashira in the mortal world, let Sybil know that Tess was unharmed and would be brought back soon. The couple said that they hoped that together they and the Freya's daughter family would decide Karim's fate, as he had set this course in motion and must, for the sake of obligation and custom, pay the consequences. Please fill me in on what has happened, Sybil requested. I can't quite make sense of this. Our son decided to allow himself to be captured and bound in an effort to eventually turn the tables and bind a witch in a dubious desire to achieve some sort of justice. He had some mistaken notion of being the captor, not the captive, and desired to bind a witch under his control. A bad idea altogether that misfired because of our agreement to help each other. Your Tess was the one to release him, which happened because of our agreement, yours and mine, and she was snapped up by him and taken to me, as any released bound gin would have been brought to me instantly. Thank the gods that that pathway was in place so that they were both returned here, and the situation revealed itself before further harm occurred. Thus, we found out about my son's ridiculous plan, and of course, this is how we now have your daughter as a guest. Karim has gone too far this time, said Ashira's husband. Hulda started to laugh. I only thought to give Tess the opportunity to release a djinn and to enter into this work together with me and Lady Ashira. My network had indicated a djinn from your extended family was up for auction. I wanted to redeem one of yours and teach and test my granddaughter. I thought we could both benefit in the process. I certainly was surprised to have her disappear in the djinn's control. Sybil said, Oh, mother, if you'd only told me what you intended. Tess reads you so well that I thought you needed to be out of the loop to test her the most thoroughly. I wanted, as always, to see what she's made of, to see her choices. Ashira turned to her husband. I agree with you, husband. The boy has gone too far. A whole different situation has arisen out of this. I gave Tess Karim's name so that she can decide his fate, within certain degrees, of course. They looked thoughtfully at each other. Hulda, do you trust your granddaughter? I do. What do you have in mind? That Karim becomes hers for three wishes. Hulda, her eyes twinkling, gave way into her mirth. Sybil asked, will Kareem be living in the bottle or as our guest or does she summon him when she wishes her wishes? The jinn looked at each other and each nodded as they spoke mind to mind. 
How Kareem takes this news of his obligation will determine what style he lives in until the obligation is fulfilled. The King Jin nodded to Sybil and Hulda and said, May my scapegrace of a son serve your family better than he served himself, and disappeared. I love the story. And I love that it feels like there'll be another part. Yay. Must be, yeah. Oh, it's beautiful. I love the relationship between the main witch of our story and the gin queen. I think that's great. Thank you. Yes, I thought it was absolutely lovely. As always, beautifully written. I especially liked the phrase colder than the coldest day in hell or whatever it was. (laughs) (laughs) I'm actually needing to really think it through though from his standpoint, what would make him feel so strongly that he would be willing to be bound in order to bind someone to teach them not to bind him to begin with? It feels like he must have some past thing happening there. And I'm really curious as to what the backstory is also. So I'm curious about the forward story and how the three wishes are going to play out for her. I imagine this is at least three more stories, not just one, but but I'm also really curious about his backstory. Right. A backstory that I think he's concealed from both of his parents. Right. As one does. <laughs> <laughs> well, apparently he was gone for, I don't remember the incredibly long amount of time that was referenced, but something short of eternity, but nearing it. It was a phoenix age, which apparently is some decades. I like his plan. I can really sympathize with this plan, especially if he's a teenager. Mm-hmm. It makes perfect sense to me. I like that he did it. <laughs> Happy that he did it. Because in this case, it was it was still set up. He even though he had this great plan. This plan wouldn't have worked without the interference of the peacekeepers and their pact. So I love how all of that is woven together. And he thinks he's behind it all, but he's not at all. But I still love that that was his intention. And I stand behind it. I support him. I support this choice. Well, and I think he's not quite had it sink in that he's been essentially chipped like a dog. (laughs) So... That's something that we'll find out more about, too, I think. A captivating tale. Thank you. I mean, and there's still Sybil's unknown experience with the gin that makes her go pink when she thinks about, and does that have anything to do with Tess? So. Mm. Or the family. Or the family, right. Mm-hmm. Yes, perhaps you're right. Three more stories of the gin. Yeah. And how does a gin age? Like, how long is a phoenix age for a gin? Is he a teenager? (laughs) Is he a 20-something who's just gone a little too rowdy? Or he could even be a tween, conceivably. Mm. And why didn't his parents notice? Like, even if he's a teen, you'd think the parents are like, hey, I think our son's been gone 40 years or whatever. Like, well, it's because he time-slipped it, though, so that for them, they haven't noticed him gone. But for him, he's been gone for a long time. 
Yeah, yeah, I, I did catch that in the story, and I thought, as a parent, mm -mm. Yeah. <laughs> we know. Yeah. <laughs> no, we pretend we don't know sometimes, so they can feel they get away with things. But mm, yeah. I, know. I don't know. That's a very good point. <laughs> Maybe they really wanted a break. Yeah, I mean, it could be. It could be that they were like, "Good lord." Let him get himself out of this. He's going to be okay. Maybe they did an oracle reading. He'll be fine. <laughs> That's right. For all the Gen Kings in heaven, this is great. <laughs> right. That could happen. I can see that one. <laughs> it's all very realistic. <laughs> well, I look forward to how it all unfolds because I have no idea either. So... Thank you so much. Your story is beautiful. Thank you. And now, Gabriella's June story. Yes, I'm excited to share part two of the Dancing Sands. We traveled all night. My captor was the swiftest horse rider I have ever seen, picking up speed and moving in between desert lands, raising and falling. At times it appeared that the horse didn't even touch the ground, but bounced off with the shimmering sand beneath, riding the momentum of a wave its powerful hooves and speed had created. I was beyond exhausted, or rather every cell in my body was spent and extended beyond its natural state of being. But nothing about my current situation was normal, so the fact that I have been awake for over 24 hours had no effect on how alert and awake I felt as we glided through the sands. And if I fell asleep, the fall from my horse riding at this pace would be painful at best. I was torn between anger and curiosity in equal parts about what had occurred that led me to be sitting behind a mysterious stranger who I have realized by now without a doubt to be a djinn. That surreal moment when everything changed kept replaying itself in my mind. The moment that the wind swept through the market and revealed a world that was coming for me and the jinn who represented it. This jinn demanded me to leave my father on the spot during the market and come with him under the threat of killing my father. In that moment, I made the only decision I could and agreed to depart. I can reconcile this decision I made, but the memory of my father's despair tears and helplessness as I was walking away will haunt me forever. My anger burns deeply and I will never forget my father's heartbreak. My curiosity was awakened long before my captor arrived. It was a curiosity about my birth, about my mother whom I never met, and a strange nature around my family's history. I knew there was so much that my father and grandmother kept from me, secrets, whispers, names, and places. The journey across the sands was by no means ordinary, but I had found that even this didn't surprise me in any way. I sat steadily and observed as the rising sands responded to the bells that the djinn rang on each hour of night that opened a dimension of landscape and sky to a new one. On the seventh bell and seventh hour, he threw a gold coin into the air and rang the bell, which revealed a beautiful golden city. The peaks of the intricate buildings were kissed by a spectacular red sunrise. As soon as the threshold of the city appeared, 
the Black Arabian we were riding slowed down greatly and entered the city in a dignified, graceful way. For a horse that's been running through the desert all night, he showed no sign of exhaustion. And just as surprisingly, I was also as alert as the morning, knowing that we had arrived at our destination. Arisa, please cover your hair, the djinn instructed in his melodic voice as he glanced at me coyly and nodded at my wind-teased black locks. Reluctantly, my hair went under my veil, which could barely contain its shape, and from under its cover, I observed the mysterious city. Just like the rest of my last few hours, I took it all in as if I were in a dream, and only a part of me was experiencing it while the rest of me slept, unconscious to the strangeness. The roofs of the buildings trimmed with gold, ornate details framing entrances, hypnotizing geometric designs on the walls, and gemstones paved the narrow streets. Deeper into the city, the roads became sand again and revealed beautiful tents, like merchant booths, but so much bigger and more elaborate, laid out across the land. Deep purples, indigo blues, crimsons, and golds moved gently in the wind as if waving an invitation. This is where the djinn was taking me, at least for now. We stopped in front of the indigo blue tent where he dismounted from his horse and offered me his hand to step down as well. This is where the first wave of exhaustion finally hit me for I pretty much fell into him as I slid off the horse. He held me steady against his chest as I collected myself, strength returning slowly to my limbs. I pushed myself away from him right away, taking a step back defiantly his smoky, spicy scent still clinging to my veil. The drapes of the tent drifted open and a slim, darkly clad djinn appeared. He bowed slightly before me and my captor and waited for us to enter the tent before he followed us in. Inside was even more exquisite than the outside and much, much bigger than I thought physically possible. But as I had come to realize by now, the physical limitations I was used to did not apply here. I was led through many veiled and curtained rooms deep into the back where a room awaited me with a low sitting couch, a tea table, and a luxurious bed in the corner enclosed with a delicate net. A tray of figs, fruit, and honey cakes were brought into the room and sat on the table along with hot steaming tea. Please, you must be famished, my captor said, motioning to the tray. Who are you and why am I here? I demanded. All in due time, as I promised, the djinn replied. I had done my duty and brought you to a safe place for now, where you are to eat and sleep until the arrival of the council. He watched my quiet, stubborn disposition, reading that I would not budge no matter how hungry or tired I must be. It is not for me to tell you yet. I am under orders to make sure you are fed and rested first. Orders from who? What council? I asked, knowing that he most likely will not answer, but I had to try. I held his gaze. His gorgeous black eyes flickered with amusement. Your name then, what is your name? I asked. He knew my name. It only seemed fair that I would know his, if fair was even part of the Jin belief system or vocabulary. As if he were reading my thoughts, he said slowly while pouring some tea into a cup. There is much you will come to know about us, and in time, you will come to understand our ways. I watched his slow, gentle movements at the table, his long pointed fingers reaching for the sugar, 
which he stirred with a copper spoon into the teacup before he handed it to me. It was a trade, me drinking the tea for his name, this I could read in his eyes. I took the cup and inhaled the delicate and strange aroma of the liquid. Once again, my curiosity took over me and I took a sip. Sweet, so sweet. Right away, my eyelids dropped a little more and my body calmed immediately. I took another sip while trying to capture where I might have tasted such a tea before, and my eyelids were so heavy now. Finally, I could feel the intensity of this day and night affect my body and form. I could barely stand. The gin took the cup from me right before it slid out of my hand. I could feel myself being picked up, carried, and laid down on the soft bed. Abraxas. My name is Abraxas, I heard him say before I drifted into a deep sleep. I woke up with a jolt, gasping for breath in the new surroundings, the recollection of how I ended up here coming back in one big swoop, the last one being my captor, Abraxas, laying me down on the bed, unconscious. I was alone in the room. My clothing was undisturbed, I noticed with great relief. I had conflicted feelings arising when I remembered the gentle manner in which he laid me down. I had no idea how long I slept with no openings in the tent. There was no way of telling what time of day or night it was. There was another table next to the bed with fresh food that must have been brought in when I was asleep. More fruit, nuts, and dried meats, which was impossible for me to resist at the time. I was beyond famished and needed all of my senses and energy before the rest of my fate here would unfold. I ate just enough to function and no more. I still didn't trust the food and drink here. The flavors or textures, though delicious, were not familiar to me and opened up my senses in a dangerous way. One of these senses brought to my awareness that whoever Abraxas has been awaiting was now in one of the other rooms nearby. I also knew that they have sensed me being awake and ready to meet them. So I departed my room and walked through the layers of cloth until I came into the heart of the tent where the important guest was waiting seated before a table with a spread of food and drinks. Abraxas turned in my direction and smiled, his mouth now visible and unveiled. It was as beautiful as I imagined and just as terrifying, the tips of his lips sharp like his teeth. I had to turn away quickly to stop myself from staring. A gin woman turned as well as I appeared and stood up quickly. She was tall, lean, and beautifully dressed. Ah, my dear child, finally I meet you in the flesh, she said and opened her arms wide, expecting me to go to her. She was dressed in the palest yellow tunic with golden shawls around her shoulders. Her skin was a honey golden brown and her eyes an iridescent light blue. She was the most beautiful woman I have ever seen. Arisa Sharayan, my granddaughter, she said, and when she smiled, a part of me dissolved, melted completely. As if hypnotized, I went into her open arms and let myself fall against her lean, strong form. Grandmother, I stumbled, surprised now as part of my rational self could think again, for she didn't look older than somebody of my mother's age, mid-thirties at most. She laughed gingerly as she released me so she could take a look at me even closer. We are not human, dear one. So we don't age in the same way, not visibly anyway, she said as she lifted my face to hers, gently touching my cheeks and smoothing my hair. You are even more beautiful than you appeared in my dream. 
It must be the heir of the seventh kingdom, which is your home, that has revived you to your true beauty. Welcome home, dear one, she said. Now sit, I have much to tell you, and eat, you must be hungry. This food was meant to nourish all of your senses, not just your physical ones, from the other world. Abraxas, please leave us. I will call for you later, and thank you, old friend. She said, as, and as requested, he bowed to her and went out of the room without a word. The next few hours unraveled so much more than I could ever imagine and created even more questions in my mind. But for now, what I had learned changed everything. I listened to my grandmother's story, and with each layer of my history that she unveiled, a part of me fell into place and anchored me more fully into my now home. I was the first female to be born into my father's line for over a hundred years. This was no coincidence. My father, Aziz Sharayan, came from a family of coin merchants who traded not only coins, but gin magic. The Sharayan family's luck, treasure, and ability to manifest was no ordinary matter. It was acquired by my great-great-great-grandfather, who met a jinn at a local fair, bound him by magic, and stole from him a coin, the coin of endless treasure. The binding on the jinn was temporary, and when the jinn freed himself and found the man who stole from him, he demanded a price for his treasure, for it no longer held the kind of power that would suit the jinn but it needed to be paid for nevertheless. The agreement was that all the daughters born into the Sharayan family line for the next hundred years would become the property and companions of the jinn he tricked and his sons. My great, great, great grandmother, upon hearing this from her husband, went to a powerful priest who put a spell on her sons and grandsons to keep any daughters from being born. This is how she felt she would keep the family safe. Also, a trick to not keep their side of the bargain. So with each son and grandson and great-grandson born, the price was that it bent their spine and they grew twisted and pain-ridden, as if an invisible hand was grasping tighter and tighter for the daughters that were not born. I thought sadly about my own father who suffered deeply from a crooked spine a mysterious condition that was now brought into the light. My grandmother watched as I tried to reconcile all this. I know it seems cruel, child, but the agreement was made and not kept up by your father's side, not ours, she said. But I am a woman. Why is his spine still twisted? Wouldn't that free him? I inquired. Not exactly, because you are not exactly a woman, not a human one anyway. As you have guessed by now, I am your mother's mother, which means that you are half jinn. I nodded, slowly. The truth of this knowing caressing my heart like a flower, expanding it into a new understanding and longings and remembering. I have always known this somehow, but I always knew that my father loved me, which is why he tried to keep me safe and hidden. My father loved me without a doubt, I defended him. I know that I was his most precious, treasured possession. My grandmother finished my sentence and took my hand into hers. He grew to love you, of this I'm sure, but he also tricked us. He tricked your mother, who is an heir to the throne of the seventh kingdom and has been missing since you were born. He lured her with magic, the magic his ancestors stole from us, 
She fell in love with him under false pretenses. And when you were born, he kept you away from her. And she wandered off to a place I cannot reach her, which leads me to believe that he bound her somewhere. And she is waiting to be found. I searched my heart as she shared this. I shared for the truth behind the words, the story that she opened before me. And it all felt true, except for the last part. The part about my father tricking my mother to fall in love. This was not true. I could feel their love across time and across dimensions that I was now beginning to know how to read. And their love was true. I looked into my grandmother's beautiful eyes, light like a shimmering river at dawn, captivating and cold. It was impossible to look away. There was something she was not telling me, but I felt I must keep quiet for now until the rest of the truth reveals itself in due time. For now, I had to make solid allies in my new home. I had to gain their trust. There was so much more than met the eye, and I was certainly used to knowing when secrets were kept from me. But I said nothing of this. Now that I'm here, grandmother, what next? Am I to live with you? Are we to look for my mother together? I asked eagerly. All in due time, Arisa. For now, I am so happy that you are safe in our world, where you belong. We will look for your mother, but for now, you must stay here with Abraxas. He will protect and keep you from harm. He will not leave your side. Who is he to you or to me, grandmother? Are we related? I asked. Well, he is of no blood relation to me, but soon will be to both of us in a way, she said, smiling. You were promised to him from childhood. You are to be his wife. Once again, these words didn't surprise me, and I took them in slowly, adjusting to the cold, curious fire that was summoned in my chest as I leaned into this knowing. Also, there's so much more she wasn't telling me, but I didn't dare to ask. I nodded my head slowly in agreement. What choice did I have? He is a good, honorable jinn and an old, trusted family friend. There is no better match for you in the entire Seventh Kingdom. And it has been destined to be a long, long time ago. You will learn all about our ways and our magic in the days and weeks to come. But for now, I will leave you so you can rest, she said, and with a sweet kiss on my forehead, she departed. As soon as she left, I went to my room seeking solitude and safety. I felt that I would be undisturbed here by Abraxas or his servants. Another wave of exhaustion covered me again. This time it was the wariness of being thrown into a new world against my will, where I didn't know the rules or who to trust or who I truly was in it, not yet. Even though this world was my true home, and what did that really mean? If I was part of one world and another, did I truly belong to either? My thoughts swirled around in a deep pondering, which I knew I couldn't finalize just yet. One thought and voice was louder than any others, and it came with a vision of myself standing in the dancing sands at night, the moon illuminating the various shadows and forms around me, but no part of me was afraid of their presence. This vision was one of the future, a future soon to come in which I held a role of great importance. The words I heard were my own, yet echoed by another sound, deeply resonating into the night. Magic, at its purest form and most important form, is meant to be free. 
When bound, it will travel through time, lineages, and distant lands to find herself whole again, while taking what was hers and owed from those who have taken her freedom. It might take a long time, but it is inevitable. Like water and like wind, she will find her way. She will find herself unleashed and liberated. And with these words, which felt like a promise, I drifted into sleep. The end of part two. I think that one has more than three parts as well. <laughs> Possibly, yes. Very nice. I feel like it's a cliffhanger. Tell me more. <laughs> Tell me more. I want to know too. I have no idea. <laughs> I loved it. Uh, and I look forward to finding out more about her magic and more about her life and more about her heart as well. If Abraxas is such a good friend to the family, I feel like he will be a good friend to her also. Could be, could be, yes. And finding out the story from her grandmother made his, Abraxas's treatment of her father made more sense then as well. Um, that there's that kind of enmity or animosity as well. How did you feel writing it? Hmm. There's so much more to the story. So I, I feel like I was given glimpses of it, which was a little challenging because I know that there, yeah, it, it's, it was literally like looking through some sort of a colored glass and only seeing just little pieces. I truly don't know. I can feel the heart of the story, but not not the facts and not all the stories yet. Do you think that there will be more generations? More than likely, but I feel that what's really important about Arisa and Arisa's coming back to her home, or at least her half home, is she brings about a great change that may or may not be favorable to all. Right. Yeah, but it will certainly be a story about power and magic. And belonging, perhaps, too. Like, does she belong to one side or another? Or does she belong to herself and some new vision? Right. Mm. Right. If one side has a history of binding and the other one has a history of magic, what happens when they come together? Yeah. Very beautiful. Thank yeah. you. Very lyrical and the imagery that you paint with your descriptions is like we're just right there. Mm. Thank you. I feel like I'm right there too. <laughs> I, have, I have appreciation for her being stubborn in one moment, but also now that things are unpacking and being unveiled to whatever degree that they are, that she's going carefully, mm -hmm. not just stubbornly. I really appreciate that. Mm -hmm. She's a very wise young lady. Um, I do find it humorous that in both our stories, there's food and there is great care and suspicion around the food. <laughs> <laughs> Also part of um, otherworldly etiquette and awareness. If there is food, you may or may not want to eat it. <laughs> <laughs> but it, 
And yet it's important to have sustenance. Right. Right. Well, isn't declining mm -hmm. food rude? In some cultures, yes. Yeah. But between other worlds, it's sometimes dangerous to eat the food. Right. That, that's what I mean. That's a quandary. Yeah. They could kill you with the food or they could kill you if you don't eat the food. That's right. So you pretend to eat the food and put it in your pocket. Right. That was my thought. Go <laughs> eat the food. Figure out how to like spit the food out. Yeah. <laughs> kind of like a grandma's house. And she makes a really dry meat. <laughs> Not my grandma. Goodness, no. Other people's grandmas. Clearly, my grandma would never do that. <laughs> I can't help but think that this grandmother, everything is going to be perfect. Mm -hmm. Arisa's grandmother. Yeah. What are your feelings about Braxis? Braxis. Oh, I'm I'm madly in love with him because he's a huge mystery. And um he sounds very sexy to me. And I'm I'm totally terrified of him too. I mean, he's got the super pointy teeth and pointy fingers. Um yeah, I really like him. I probably trust him more than anybody else in this story, aside from Arisa. Mm -hmm. Currently I do. I look forward to whenever we hear more of her story. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. And special thanks to the fantastic Zoe Magic for her phenomenal editing skills.